This is your host Shane with Radical Rocks. Uh, today we're going to talk about growing opals. Um, we're going to talk about the copper world mine and the chrysocolla and azurite and malachite that comes out of that area. It's an area in California. Um, I think you might actually still be able to go over in that area, but we'll talk about the history. Um, we'll talk about several other minerals, but also want to let you know very excited to announce the RadicalRocks.com website is up and going. Um, it's got a few items on it. It's got links to all our social media. If you scroll down the page, whether you're on a uh, app, a phone, or whether you're on a regular computer. So let's get right into it because uh, growing opals is pretty pretty cool idea I actually bumped into. I had a real rough night last night so at work, so I thought, you know, I'm just going to wing it today and uh, grab a couple articles and things that I've been looking at and reading myself, kind of familiarizing myself with lately, and we'll just go through and talk about some of this stuff, because that always cheers me up when I talk about rocks <laughs> and minerals and gems. So, Growing Opals in the Lab, um, this is very interesting. It's written by Lewin Day, L-E-W-I-N Day. And I found it on hackday.com. And there's actually a video there that's quite lengthy that you're going to want to watch if you're at all interested in growing opals in the lab. Um, opals, as you know, from the most basic explanation, are um, silica with the structures that uh, allow the shifting of color because actually um, water molecules are trapped within the silica. Now the way they do it with the synthetic gemstones, which apparently, um, you know, I, I, I watched most of the video, apparently you need good ventilation. They go into uh, the things that you need to make it. Um, some of them are quite basic, like ammonia, and other other ingredients is silica and then some of the ingredients are a little harder to get but he actually tells you and shows you how to get those and uh, step by step how to make the colorizations within it because it's a different process to make your synthetic opal but in the process of watching this growing the opal yourself um, and knowing that businesses are growing opal professionally there is some beautiful, stunning opal out there that looks real, and uh, it's fake. So we need to be aware when we are buying products out there that we don't get uh, some of this product that uh, is not real. So opals are one of the uniquest among gemstones, and they're formed by tiny silica nanospheres. They are arranged in just the right structure that gives them the color shifting available, you know, um, ability when you look at them from different angles. Okay, so at the Thought Emporium, um, this is where he decided to grow some himself. Um, it's not the hardest gemstone to to make synthetically, but it's it's certainly not the most easy one either. He said. He requires a process called the tetraethyl orthosilicate, or T-E-O-S. And uh, this stuff can be hard to find, but again, it sometimes can be had on eBay or whatnot, 
or maybe you might have to set up a special account with a company that sells different types of chemicals like this. TEOS. Um, the initial phase involves mixing this TEOS with reactants that form the nanoscale silica spheres in the range of about 200 to 350 nanometers wide. And this is by the exact mixing of the solution that you achieve these little tiny spheres in that exact range. When these spheres are in the solution, the mixture must be carefully dried in such a way as to create the right structure to produce the opal's famous color effects. And at that stage, the industrial producers add a little bit more silica to stabilize the matrix. And um, uh, they use, uh, he couldn't figure out the trade secrets of how they do that, but he relied on a resin which, although it wasn't perfect, it did allow the specimen to stabilize and show off for the purposes of the video. So, <clears throat> in the end, you can end up with a basic opal. Now, another interesting thing that the video pointed out is, you know, when you find the plain opal um, that doesn't have the color change, it just has the kind of uh, milk glass look to it that's out there in the field. The reason this opal doesn't have the color change is because the cell, the the um, the little silica nanospheres were not arranged in the precise order to be able to give these color shifting, um, uh, where you see the color through it. So they were just not in alignment, and so you get something that just looks like smooth um, milk glass. Okay, um, pretty neat. Uh, doesn't look like it's had a lot of views, so uh, maybe go over there and give a little support. He's got several um, videos on how to make different types of gemstones. Pretty interesting. Might be fun to look at. I was enjoying um, spending some time there. Now, I want to go into um, Copper World Minerals. Now, I just got my RadicalRocks.com uh, website open it's a basic website, but at the bottom, there's all kinds of links to all our social media, which we're very proud of. Uh, there's one link to the videos, the blogs, um, the social media, um, and all that good stuff, right? But um, there's also a store. So uh, we've worked really hard at trying to, uh, you know, I'm, I'm learning as I go, but... One of the products that I had that I wanted to get on there, you, you want to put your nice stuff up there. You want to get some nice items up there. I have a pretty good catch of uh, Copper World Chrysocolla, and uh, which is is nice. You know, it's it's not like Jim uh, Silica Chrysocolla like what you find in Peru. Um, there's some really beautiful Jim Chrysocolla there. I mean, you you scratch it with a knife. And it's as hard or harder than the knife. That's how good it is. And I actually have a piece of that beautiful blue Jim Chrysocolla listed on there with uh, some of the red matrix. Very desirable from Peru. But the Chrysocolla from Copper World, I'm going to tell you a little bit about that. Uh, most commonly, it's going to come in green uh, with a lot of azurite and copper sulfite minerals. It's not going to be uh, always the hardest um, because chrysocolla can be as low as two on the mole scale. Um, typically, 
The stuff I find is probably three and a half or harder. Uh, I'd say three and a half to five. Some of the chrysocolla from Copper World is five um, in the hardness scale and maybe even a, a bit harder, but not quite totally siliconized, the stuff that I found there. I'm sure there is some that is better, but let me tell you a little bit about the Copper World mine. Who discovered it? Um, and then we'll talk a little bit more about some of the gemstones, and we'll talk about that too as we go through it. But the person who discovered the Copper Mine World, his name was Johnny Moss, and he was credited with discovering the Copper World Mine. This was located um, on the southwest slope of Clark Mountain. Now, Johnny was born in uh, Iowa in 1839. He came to California in 1857, and he was a Pony Express rider. And in 1861, he went on to go look for the new gold discoveries in El Dorado County, which is due east of Searchlight, Nevada. So you kind of get a map uh, where he was. And then uh, in 1863, he discovered a fabulously rich moss gold mine in the Mojave County of Arizona. The next year, he took the Mojave chief, uh, Native American chief, I uh, believe his name is Ira Tuba. It's A-R-A-T-A-B-A, -A -A. might be Taba, Taba. He took him to Washington, D.C. to see the white chief, who happened to be President Abraham Lincoln. Now, during that time, this Native American unrest in the Mojave uh, Desert was going on. He signed a treaty with the Paiute Indians, which, interestingly, uh, my grandmother, my great uh, great great grandmother is listed as a Paiute Indian, um, but she's actually Shoshone. But she, it, I know the story. She moved over there before they were put on the Indian Rose, um, pre uh, late 1800s when they established these Indian Rose, um, or mid 1800s. So, what happened was this Paiute chief brought. Johnny Moss, a piece of metallic copper. And after searching some time, Moss was able to find the source. So he headed to San Francisco with these samples to show to some potential investors. And because of these great minerals and his report, the Paiute Company was organized by April 13, 1869 in San Francisco and right away, the company sponsored a party to set out from Visalia to explore the area. Um, they brought a mining expert with them, and his name was James H. Crossman. He was a Massachusetts-born 49er, um, so he was part of the gold rush too. Uh, part of a party that discovered silver in addition to copper. They staked some 130 claims in the area in Clark and also in the nearby Yellow Pine District. Now, the mining district uh, and the mountain uh, took their time. Um, also, oh, I forgot to mention, there was another member of the party. His name was William H. Clark, and he, was a, he worked in Visalia, another city in California, as a businessman and um, a saloon keeper. 
And the mining district and the mountain took their name from Clark. And they got rid of the E, had an E on the end. So that's that's where they came up with the mountain, the name for the mountain. The locations included Copper World Claims staked on September 28th or 24th and 1869 around the original moss discovery from the year before. And a year later, a ton, a few tons of high-grade ore were extracted from Copper World and shipped to San Francisco. Now, for about 10 years, nothing happened. James H. Boyd invested in opening the mine in 1878. He put a, a test smelter in San Bernardino on the back of Van Doren in the Leachman Wagon Shop on 3rd Street with the intention of moving it to the mine uh, if it was going to be, you know, if it was going to pay off. Now, the absence of positive news led to the conclusion that it was a failure. So Boyd, also the owner of a bullion mine, he continued to hold the copper world for nearly 20 years without really doing anything to develop it. In 1884... He had a correspondence from Ivanpah who wrote regarding the mine. This is what he said. South of Ivanpah and in Clark District are some large copper mines among which the copper world number one and two in this group of mines would furnish a large amount of freight. But no one did anything or responded until about the late 1890s. The Mining and Scientific Report Press reported in January 1897 that the eastern capitalists were negotiating for purchase of the mine. At or about this time, the mine was a little more than a prospect for it had 50-foot deep shafts, two audits that were 15 and 75 feet long, and it was owned by Lawrence, who after drilling a hole for blast, found red copper oxide but refrained to shoot the round, fearing the blast would destroy the evidence of mineralization. So kind of like some of this was hearsay, some there was a bit of facts along with this, but people are like, okay, maybe this thing is rich. So in September 1898, he sold the mine to Ivan Pa Smelting Company of Los Angeles for $1,100. The company imported with original stock issues of $250,000 and which was enough backing at that time with to get uh, uh, blocking to begin blocking sufficient ore to justify constructing a smelter so a certain amount of ore to supply the smelter for about 5 years a crew of 85 under the the uh, management of VC Rechi R E C H E he sank two wells 5 miles east of the mine in December 1898 began constructing a 50-ton smelter that was capable of processing and smelting 50 tons of ore per day. They began operations finally March 10th, 1899, producing 6 to 7 tons of 95% of pure copper mat or bullion daily. Wow. 6 to 7 tons of 95% pure copper. The camp and the wells were known as Valley Wells or Roselle Wells, or simply Roselle. Roselle. Uh, the post office at Ivanpah closed and moved here to where the mine was in 1899. 
In November, W.F. Blake visited the mine and pronounced Copper World is proving to be a veritable bonanza. The camp is growing there and eventually will be as large as famous Jerome Camp Copper Camp. In spite of this, there's virtually no contemporary accounts of the camp, although photos show numerous buildings at the mine. So it never really quite got as huge as what they had hoped, but it was really producing. The miners were producing one ton every day per man and were limited by 50 ton per day capacity because of the smelter. 20 mule teams hauled 35 tons of ore from the mine to the shelter. Altogether, there was 140 mules utilized in the operation. After the reduction at the smelter, the nearly pure copper was teamed to the California Eastern Railroad at Manville, 30 miles southeast. Coal from New Mexico for the smelter and supplies came with the return trip. Three or four uh, actual times a month, a 20-car, 20 20-ton 20 car load of copper mat was shipped to New York for final smelting, and the, each rail car of mat was worth $7,000. So that investment was really paying off. By late 1899, the Copper World was said to be one of the four largest copper mines in the United States. But in June 1900, it was reported that 11 tons of 13% ore had been produced. So, a little conflict there in reporting. As early as 1899, legal troubles began to surface. And uh, at that time, W.E. Robertson, the former vice president and general manager, filed a lawsuit against D.J. Hanbury, president of Ivan Paw Smelting, to recover payment for services rendered for the period prior to July 18th, 1898 and May 2nd, 1899. One of the issues of the lawsuit involved the company's agreement to pay him a salary of $6,000, yet he had only received $400. So this this lawsuit affected production. Uh, the mine closed at the end of May, and in early June again it started operating, but sufficient ore only lasted six weeks. It stopped again in July. <clears throat> the men were paid and discharged. The post office closed. Um, there was a secession of short openings and closings after this period of time. And we are going to get into the minerals a little more. I just thought it would be fun to go through the history of the mine. Um, there's a little bit more history. We're almost done. The transportation to the Manville, which is the lift that lifts the men up and down into the tunnel, um, was expensive. They cut costs. They uh, used railroad management line down a steep canyon to stabilize construction for this extension. Began in April 1991, uh, or excuse me, 1901, and then in 1902, a final spike. A final spike was driven for this 10-mile extension um, to to locate Ivanpah siding on the Union Pacific. So this would help, you know, in transporting. Uh, there was a three-mile extension to the California Eastern beyond the exhaustion built by the Bright and Crandall Company, and the track was laid across Sandy Wash to a point where teams of freight to the Copper World and other camps of the road could load without having to pull a stretch of sand. So pretty cool. That really helped. Um, then they extended another 15 miles from Copper World, the rail, 
to a settlement named Ivanpah, and this was another place with the same the same name. And Ivanpah, a uh, little town there, only consisted of about twenty or thirty people. In 1902, the railroad reached Ivanpah Valley. The mine, the smelter, uh, resumed production again for a few months, producing about ten tons of copper mat a week. And they wanted to get a bigger one, but uh, it didn't happen. There was a sheriff's cell set up. Um, looked like uh, things were not going the right direction. The Ivanpah Smelting Company found itself in new legal battles, and uh, it did not go well. Finally, in 1906, Dr. L.D. Godshaw acquired the property, organized the co Kalpa Mining Company and operated the mine from 1906 until 1908. Um, the smelter wasn't working as well. Um, you know, they hauled the ore um, rather than copper mat, so they they decided to haul the ore out of there and smelter it in Needles, a little town in Needles along the border of Arizona and Needles along Highway 40. And... Um, that was what kept him going. Um, at Ivanpah, the Santa Fe station, which had been deserted for some time, burned in April 2008, supposedly by some bums. Um, also, buildings were burned, the whole town, basically. And um, the last of the rails were tore up in 1913 and finally in 1921 all of them, all the way to um, the whole town from Manville. Now, with a high price of copper during World War I, mining resumed. Kokopa Mining Company popped up again, uh, 1916 to 1918. They had a 100-ton capacity blast furnace there for making copper mat that opened at Valley Wells, a short distance away. We talked about it early. Also, they were producing 100 tons of ore a day by tractor. Uh, 13 tons of slag uh, were also smelted. The slag averaged about 2 to 10% per copper. The copper mat was hauled 25 miles to the Salt Lake route at Sima uh, and shipped to the smelter in Garfield, Utah, sulfur and um, in the form of iron pyrite for the smelter's charge was obtained from Jerome, Arizona from the Francis Copper Mine located on the south weeks, uh, southwest slope of the Providence Mountains um, and up to 60 men were employed. Interesting, the Providence Mountains, that's, I was telling you about my great-great-great-grandmother uh, being a Shoshone, that's where they came from, was the Providence Mountains, and they actually traveled to the Paiutes, which the Paiutes are actually up, uh, the Paiute uh, tribe is actually in uh, Bakersfield, up in the up in the mountains there, uh, near Kern, Kern County, and there's still a little reservation up there today. Um, the way I understand it, still a little reservation up there. I know there is one. So, um, at this time, the average value of the ore was 4% copper, 3 to 4% silver, and 0.1 ounce of gold per ton. 
there was 300 and, uh, 3,743 tons of old tailings that were being treated um, to, to go through these tailings and uh, extra stuff. That was in 19, from 1944 to 1949 uh, when they began final cleanup operation. In 1977, Philip Rivera acquired a long-term lease from Dan Murphy Foundation, the owners of Copper World, in 1977 and commenced mining for Royal Jim Azurite, which is a combination of malachite, azurite, and tinnerite, and that work continued until 1981. Now, of course, there is a huge variety of copper minerals that can be found there. Um, I have collected, uh, have a collection of copper world minerals. I have a friend that does a lot of uh, mineral collecting there, and um, I've been able to um, get some of his uh, minerals and collections and um, you can go on the website and see I've got pictures of a few samples there that are nice to look at now of course you're gonna see a lot of um, I want to bring up one more thing here um, let me just put this in mine dat org um, so yeah, greens and blues are are really quite plentiful there. Um, I don't know the status of of mining there right now or collecting, but at one time um, you could go there and collect a little bit without uh, um, getting in huge big trouble. And um, let's see, did I go to the right website? Yeah, I think I did. I've got some more information on it. I want to tell you about that here in just a minute. Um, just one of the websites I had kind of died out here, so I'm trying to pull it back up. Um, so Chrysocolla of Jim Quality Greens Blues with some dendrites, which are looks kind of like a fern design. That's pretty common there, um, which this Chrysocolla has azurite and malachite. Sometimes the malachite or the azurite can be quite thick in pieces. Some of the samples are so full of uh, azurite that... They have both copper and malachite, which they call this sample the bluebird. This is what the old timers of the rock hounding and lapidary will call them. And um, these can be some beautiful specimens. I have cut and polished them, and uh, they look very nice. Of course, since you are in the copper world mine, um, you can definitely look at... Uh, you can find copper there. I'm still having a hard time finding the information I wanted to find here that I had up at one time, but it doesn't want to pop up. So let's see if we can do it another way here. Disappointing at the least. Um, another thing that good, good uh, chrysocolla uh, will have in it, it can be siliconized. I think everybody knows that. Gem silica. Sometimes it can be jelly. It can be even crystalline. But it is kind of a, um, a chalcedony also. Uh, it forms as a chalcedony, and um, they call it, uh, there's a different name for it, which I can't remember what it is. 
So anyway, I can't find that website. So let's just take some time to look at another mineral here that uh, I have listed. Um, hope I didn't lose it. Yeah, here we go. All right. Let's take a look at how about some... Let me see, how long are we into this? We're already 27 minutes. You know what? I'm just going to go ahead and conclude it. Maybe next time we'll go into some turquoise history. If you like this, let me know. If it's too long, too much information, too boring, let me know. And uh, I won't go into the mining history of a particular mine or claim. It was just an idea that I had that you guys might be interested in knowing in some of the history of a mine and not something I want to do every single time, but something I thought would be fun to do once in a while. Let me know. Um, again, check out RadicalRocks.com. Come like, come subscribe. Remember, we're giving back to all things rocks and minerals. We're trying to keep rock hounding alive. Um, we give back through our social media. We were doing, uh, getting a little bit of income through our podcast. And uh, we're hoping to get 10,000 members on our YouTube videos so that we can give back to rock and gym hunting uh, and um, education for our young people and for our communities. With that, remember rock hounds don't die, they petrify.